Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio, still recording from quarantine, despite the fact that some people seem to think that the pandemic is over, it very much is not. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So I apologize for missing last week, but I actually had a COVID scare and I was also extremely busy at work and needed to use my free time to decompress away from my desk and any kind of laptop. Um, My partner had a fever on Monday and initially tested positive, but a follow-up test came back negative. Um, So she may or may not have had Omicron, which quickly ran its course. Um, But luckily, both myself and my husband have thus far tested negative, and I think at this point it's pretty safe. Um, So, you know, other than having had to quarantine from her dogs for a day, everything seems to have turned out okay. Uh, Her dog Wally is actually undergoing chemo for lymphoma, poor thing. Um, So we didn't want to make any, take any chances. Uh, and so, yeah, it's really great though. He seems to be doing really well. Um, you know, it's really amazing what, uh, modern veterinary medicine can do as well as modern regular medicine. So that is, um, a good thing. And so hopefully he will continue to, uh, respond well and continue to live a very happy and healthy life. Uh, So far, it hasn't really slowed him down in any way. Um, And so I think it's definitely the right decision to uh, give him a fighting chance. Okay, so hopefully that is going to die down a little bit, and I will be able to keep coming up with shows for the immediate future. And so, yeah. Let's start tonight with, as always, a few updates about COVID-19. And so, um, just as a general preamble, as I've said a couple of times already today, uh, COVID-19 is still very much with us. Uh, The peak of the Omicron uh, wave may have hit, and we might be on the downslope from that. But there are other variants still out in uh, circulation. There's apparently a variant of Omicron that's actually more infectious, um, but doesn't seem to have hit places as hard. And so they found that in South Africa, and I think they found it in some other places as well. And goodness knows we could have yet another completely unknown variant Uh, pop up in uh, the future. And so despite a lot of people kind of believing that the worst is over, it may still be problematic. And so I'm still trying to keep as safe as possible. And so one of the things that I heard talked about this week is the story that CBD oil 
may help against COVID-19. Now, of course, as soon as I heard this, I groaned because I knew it would be immediately taken up by the evangelists for marijuana as a panacea for all uh, disease. Um, And so it's always interesting to see what was actually found versus what people are going to make it out to be. And that's actually a real problem. Um, and so one of the things I was reading about was that the FDA basically is, has been fighting a real battle against, um, commercial CBD distributors. A lot of them are putting information on their packaging based on preliminary studies of CBD that is completely different from the one that they are have on offer, but of course they want to cash in on those claims. So what did the researchers actually find? They found that certain cannabinoids that they were studying showed signs that they were able to combat the coronavirus, both in vitro and in animals, as well as in a patient study. So the researchers looked at a survey of medical records for patients taking an FDA-approved drug for epilepsy that contains CBD. They found a significant negative association with SARS-CoV-2 infections. They looked at 1,212 patients from the National COVID Cohort Collaborative and found that patients taking an oral solution of CBD for epilepsy had significantly lower rates of infection than a cohort of matched patients who were not taking CBD. And so the researchers believed at that point that further research should be undertaken to see if treatments could be developed to help combat COVID-19 infections. CBD has anti-inflammatory effects so we thought that maybe it would stop the second phase of COVID infection involving the immune system, the so-called cytokine storm. Surprisingly, it directly inhibited viral replication in lung cells, said Marsha Rosner, PhD, a professor at the Ben May Department of Cancer Research at the University of Chicago Medical School and a senior author of the study. Now, the team first treated human lung cells with a non-toxic dose of CBD for two hours and then exposed them to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and monitored the cells for the virus and viral spike proteins. They found that within a certain threshold concentration, the drug inhibited the virus's ability to replicate. They also found that it worked in two other types of cells and with three other variants in addition to the wild-type strain or the very original version of uh, SARS-CoV-2. Interestingly, it didn't prevent the cells from being infected initially, but did prevent the virus from replicating early in the infection cycle. High concentrations of CBD almost completely eradicated the expression of viral RNA key, of viral RNAs key to the replication of the virus. The results were actually a surprise. 
We just wanted to know if CBD would affect the immune system, Rosner said. No one in their right minds would have ever thought that it blocked viral replication, but that's what it did. They found that the CBD activated one of the host cell stress responses and the generation of interferons, which are antiviral cell proteins. And so the team then moved on to animal trials. They found that pre-treatment with CBD for a week prior to infection suppressed infection both in the lungs and nasal passages of mice who were then infected with SARS-CoV-2. These results provide major support for a clinical trial of CBD in humans, said Rosner. Now, again, even if they were to develop a treatment, though, this isn't a panacea, and it would not replace any of the first lines of defense already in place. Vaccines remain the most effective way to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in conjunction with mask wearing, social distancing, and better ventilation in indoor venues. A clinical trial is necessary to determine whether CBD is really effective at preventing or suppressing SARS-CoV-2 infection, but I think this may have potential as a polyphylactic as a prophylactic, excuse me, uh, treatment, said Rosner. Maybe you're in a hot spot, or you think you might have been exposed, or you've just tested positive. That's where we think CBD might have an effect. And so, again, to reiterate, and to be very, very uh, <laughs> clear about this, what they don't say is that any over-the-counter or commercially available product containing CBD will necessarily help against COVID-19. The CBD used, again, is a specific, high-purity, specially formulated dose that is specifically formulated for the purpose of being um, a prophylactic for um, epilepsy purposes. But basically, the idea is that it's a specifically uh, pharmacologically active um dose. We don't want people running out taking random cannabinoids, said Rosner. (laughs) And in fact, they also looked at other cannabinoids and found that when combined with THC, the efficacy of the CBD was actually reduced. And of course, the use of CBD is not without potential risks. It can have effects depending on the mode of delivery. So, for instance, if you are vaping it, that can actually have detrimental um, effects on your lungs and even your heart. So you do definitely have to be careful. And it's not been studied in all populations, including in pregnant women. Um, And, of course, pregnant women is definitely a um, cohort that we continue to struggle with, It's hard to uh, convince pregnant women in some uh, corners of the country that, um, more than in some corners, honestly, that having the vaccine is good for them. Um, And so all I've talked about this, in fact, that all of the um, trials that have been done, all of the um, information we have so far absolutely points to the fact that it is indeed um, absolutely 
better for them to get the vaccine while they're pregnant um, and that that can confer a lot of uh, protection if they are um, infected. And so basically, um, it definitely decreases their chances of having major complications if they are infected with COVID-19. And so, yeah. But of course, as with all things, more research is necessary. We are very eager to see some clinical trials on the, on the subject to get off the ground, Rosner said, especially as we are seeing that the pandemic is still nowhere near the end, determining whether this generally safe, well-tolerated, and non-psychoactive cannabinoid might have antiviral effects against COVID-19 is of critical importance. And there's another aspect of this uh, research, which is also kind of cool and which Rosner pointed out, um, is that this was actually a really interdisciplinary um, team of workers, of researchers, of uh, labs and things like that. So there are researchers from three different research universities and from departments such as microbiology, molecular engineering, cancer biology, and chemistry. And so um, that is definitely the kind of research that we want to encourage is people coming across uh, interdisciplinary lines and working together um, in you know, within still uh, somewhat their wheelhouse because uh, people who try and cross into completely different wheelhouses, uh, that's often where you end up with crank ideas. Um, So you end up with a lot of um, physicists who uh, talk about the impossibility of uh, abiogenesis and things like that. Um, but this is not that. This is very cool to have a bunch of people come together from different uh, corners of the sort of biochemical um, spectrum in order to do this kind of research. And I think it's really important to do this kind of research because as much as obviously I don't believe that uh, marijuana is a panacea, uh, there are actual clinical uses for marijuana. And the more that we find uh, good ones um, for CBD and maybe even THC, though that's, you know, usually not really um, that useful uh, pharmacologically for disease at this point. Um, I think it's it helps, again, to kind of destigmatize uh, marijuana, which is a important thing to do from um, a social uh, perspective. And so, it's really good to be trying to destigmatize marijuana. And um, as much as I don't think you should run out and do marijuana, if you don't, as a general rule, I think that uh, the enforcement of laws against it have caused a lot of uh, social uh, destruction, frankly, in this country. And the more we can turn away from that, the better. Um And of course, you know, it would be nice if we actually uh, commuted the sentences of some of those people, but that is a uh, rant for another show. Um, (laughs) I am uh, definitely for uh, the 
abolition of a lot of what we do uh, as far as the uh, prison industrial complex. But again, different podcast. Um, it may come up in my, uh, I, I, I'm still hoping to eventually do a, if not a short series, um, something having to do with you're not mad at science, you're just mad at capitalism. Um, but anyways, let us get back to tonight's information. Sorry for the uh, digression. We are going to talk about some good news. And that is hard to come by a lot of times when it comes to COVID-19. So let's talk about some good news. It turns out that despite the fact that Omicron has many mutations along the spike protein and has continued to be able to fool antibodies, often infecting those who have been vaccinated and even boosted, antibodies antibodies, are not our only defense against the disease. T-cells seem to be unfazed by the changes to the spike protein and continue to offer robust immunity robust immune responses. This is largely why most people who are vaccinated and especially boosted have a low rate of serious disease. T-cells work by recognizing fragments of protein. Cells chop up a small fraction of the proteins they make. Specialized proteins grab onto some of these fragments and display them on the cell's surface. When a T-cell recognizes one of these fragments as foreign to the body, it has the ability to then trigger several responses. Before we go on, I would just like to say that this is the like coolest kind of uh, molecular uh, just machinery, um, you know, the, the ability of these cells to do this sort of thing is just mind-blowing. Um, I know I keep digressing tonight, but, um, I actually watched a video the other day about, um, the, I forget exactly what the term is, but it's basically, um, the idea of, um, basically having your idea of proportionality blown out of the water. And so, um, they were using a simulator of the universe and they just realized how incredible incredibly big it is compared to what we can see um and what we could even ever get to um and so they were talking about how it's that just blows their mind and sometimes when i think about all the like amazing things that have developed it really absolutely blows my mind uh when it comes to biochemistry and biology and um i just think it's very cool um, I don't think that there's any reason why it couldn't have developed on its own. I just think it's really cool that it did. <laughs> okay, let's get back to T-cells though. Uh, so it can trigger several responses. Helper T-cells make signaling molecules that alert the immune system to the possible threat. And killer T-cells will actually attach to the surface of the cell and kill it. This is a key part of your immune response. For instance, a lack of helper T-cells is what causes the immune deficiency in those with AIDS. Tracking the work of T-cells is a lot harder than it is for antibodies. So basically, antibodies, you can measure those simply by taking a 
blood sample from someone and literally counting them. <laughs> um, and so basically you count them up and the more there are, the better the immune response will be against infection, at least in theory. Um, T cells, on the other hand, can also be found in blood samples, but they actually require the research to grow them in culture for weeks in order to test their immune response. Two teams have now done this with T cells from a cadre of vaccinated and infected individuals in order to test their T cell response to Omicron. The first study was conducted in South Africa, where groups of patients vaccinated with either the J&J or Pfizer BioNTech uh, vaccines, or from those who had not been vaccinated but had recovered from a previous COVID-19 infection. Now, the groups were small, 15 to 20 people, but the results were encouraging. They found that both helper and t killer T-cell responses were lessened when exposed to Omicron's version of the spike protein, but not by much. They found a 70 to 80% response compared to the original strain. Some individuals didn't have a killer T-cell response, but did still retain a helper T-cell response. In addition, many had a strong T-cell response despite severely reduced antibodies. So again, it's showing that even if the antibody load has gone down, they still have a lot of uh, parts of the arsenal of their immune system that are able to see Omicron and act accordingly. The results of the second study conducted in Boston were even more encouraging. Looking at people who had been vaccinated again with either J&J &J or Pfizer vaccines around eight months earlier, they found that the killer T-cell responses remained high, 80% for the J&J &J and even higher for the Pfizer. Helper cells saw virtually no drop-off. And memory T-cells, which help the immune system remember over longer periods, found no drop-off with Omicron. And so our understanding of the complex interplay between antibodies and T-cells is obviously still incomplete in relation to infection with SARS-CoV-2 infections specifically, but these results suggest that despite a drop-off in antibodies that prevent a person from becoming infected at all, T-cells might serve as a second line of defense, preventing the disease from taking hold and causing severe disease or death. And um, this is another bit of good news, which is that in addition, because the mutations that help Omicron evade detection by antibodies do not seem to be shared by T-cells and allows the virus to infect those with strong T-cell responses, there's a hope that it will not be pressured to evolve changes that help it to additionally outwit the T-cells. So basically, the selection pressure right now is on invading or evading the antibodies because you want to be able to infect people. And so that's where the main um, mutations are happening on the spike protein is in order to uh, trick the, the antibodies to let it into the system. But because it's concentrating on that, one hopes that it will continue to miss that the T cells are doing a good job of basically thwarting it once it has infected someone. Because of course, its job 
uh, quote unquote, obviously, um, it's hard not to anthropomorphize, um, as we all know, humans are very good at anthropomorphizing everything. Um, but basically the only thing that the virus is trying to do is, um, replicate. And so hopefully that will continue to be the case and, um, that T cell response will continue to keep people from, um, having severe disease as long as they're vaccinated or have, uh, perhaps survived, um, a previous infection. And so, uh, we know that there's still issues, um, with people who have had previous, um, infections. So some of them have actually shown strong responses and some of them show not so strong responses, but it's the same with vaccines too. Um, but the, the thing is, is that rolling the dice on getting COVID-19 and then having it have a prophylactic effect versus getting a vaccine, you're still much better off getting the vaccine because then you don't have to have an initial infection. Uh, so again, once again, vaccines remain the best, uh, most useful uh, defense against COVID-19. All right. So that is all we are going to talk about tonight with COVID-19. But um, I think that it's a good time now to take a break and do some show promos and PSAs. And then we will come back and we'll talk about some more medical news, but not Omicron or COVID in general. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. 
the Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I mentioned before, we're going to stick to medicine for a while. And so a team of researchers in Germany believe that they've discovered a cause for chronic inflammatory bowel disease. Scientists from the Technical University of Munich identified a mechanism which triggers an interaction that goes awry between intestinal bacteria and cells in the intestinal mucus layer in XLP2, a condition associated with IBD. XLP2 is a rare genetic disease that caused by a defect in the gene XIAP and which causes inflammation in the bowels in 30% of cases. Babies with the disorder often have issues such as diarrhea, abdominal pain, weakness, and weight loss. The only effective treatment has been stem cell transplants, which themselves have a high risk of mortality. Um, Because obviously when you're trying to transplant stem cells, if they are rejected, and especially if someone is young, that's not good. The team, led by Dr. Monica Yabel, Adam Wahinda, and Madeline Mueller of the Institute for Molecular Immunology and the Clinic of Hematology and Oncology of Tums University Hospital, looked at organoids, which are basically intestinal cells in a petri dish, so uh, in vitro, as well as animal experiments to identify the mechanism behind the inflammation response and to discover how it becomes chronic. The innate immune system overreacts to microbes in the gut, said Yabel. In a healthy person's gut, bad bacteria is eliminated, and then the immune cells return to a resting state. However, in some patients with XLP2, a chain reaction begins that creates the inflammation. So, in all people, cells have toll-like receptors, or TLRs. That's actually what they're called. At first, I was like, oh, I get it. It's like a toll, but nope, that's actually what they're called. (laughs) 
And so these are unique structures in the cell wall used to identify harmful microbes. When a TLR binds to an offending cell's mo molecule, the signaling substance TNF and its TNFR1 and TNFR2 receptors activate the immune response to eliminate the harmful microbe. Sorry, there's a lot of um, <laughs> letter-based uh, acronyms in this uh, story. So in XLP2 patients, TNF binds to the TNFR1 receptor on panath cells and dendritic cells in the gut mucus layer, causing them to die. This is bad because panath cells actually produce antimicrobial substances to regulate the balance of bacteria in the intestines and dendritic cells help limit reactivity to the gut microbiota, which is required for optimal response to intestinal pathogens. The loss of these cells obviously creates an imbalance where good bacteria end up being attacked and cannot maintain a proper balance in the gut, thus causing an even further immune response. Malfunctioning panath cells have been observed in many patients with IBD of varying causes. So basically it becomes this vicious cycle where, um, you know, these good cells in the gut are attacked by the, um, by the person's own immune system. And then because that then dysregulates the amount of uh, good versus bad bacteria in the gut, then that in and of itself causes a further immune response and it just, it just keeps cycling. Um, and so that's why you get a lot of inflammation. We believe that this principle might also be applicable to other inflammatory bowel diseases and not only in XLP2 patients said Professor Percy Knoll, the director of the Institute for Molecular Immunology at TUM. The findings suggest new pathways to explore for drug creation. Previous therapeutics have focused on drugs that inhibit the TNF receptors. The problem is, is that these molecules aren't terribly specific and deactivate both TNFR1 and TNFR2. Our experiments show that it would be better if we had a selective inhibitor for the TNFR1 receptor, said Yabel, or Yabal. Interestingly, some patients do not respond to this treatment that's already out there. And so the team wishes to now look at the adaptive immune system, which learns throughout a person's life to form special antigens and to explore its role in the gut in order to be able to understand even more about this. And again, obviously the goal is to develop therapeutics because these are really, um, you know, diseases that can really affect someone's uh, well-being. It really um, can have a large impact on someone's um, life. And so it's important to be able to find therapeutics, especially when the ones that are used now, uh, some patients don't even respond to. Um, and so it's very important to try and develop those. Okay, 
let's move on now and talk about one of my uh, least favorite things to think about ever, which is antibiotic resistance. Um, you know, before the pandemic hit, uh, it was sort of the one two existential dread in the back of my mind. And now we are in the midst of a pandemic, um, which obviously I had already been worried about. Um, because I actually listen to scientists and read about things and understand the issues about uh, how we are horrendously underprepared for any kind of disaster at any time. Um, humans in general are terrible at uh, forward thinking, and that's really, really present in our ability to... Uh, prepare for disasters. Our mitigating uh, responses to disasters are usually very reactive um, and have been very much on display in the last two years. Uh, everything we've done has been very reactive and not um, forward thinking or um, just just absolutely uh, have been kind of a mess. Um as far as the general response from, say, governments and things like that. I mean, individual scientists are doing very good work to try and develop more forward-thinking vaccines and things like that that are broad-spectrum rather than just specifically against Omicron and things like that. But, um, and so, of course, the other big one is antibiotic resistance, and because it's not as flashy as a pandemic and it's a little bit harder uh, to explain to people. And of course, part of the issue is that um, it tends to be something that people don't really understand in a way that is, um, I want to say it's, that it's not visceral because like a lot of people Part of the problem, of course, is when people go to the doctor and they're sick and the doctor says you have a virus, you just got to wait it out, um, you know, back before we talking about COVID when you just have a cold or something, but people want something. And a lot of times doctors will end up prescribing antibiotics. Um, I really wish that they could just, you know, uh, prescribe some sugar pills for people that would probably work. Uh just as much, uh, which is to say it could even actually work better um, and wouldn't help contribute to uh, antibiotic resistance. Because as we've talked about earlier, uh, evolution creates some pretty amazing things. And so it's developed all these amazing mechanisms for cells to be able to figure out uh, whether or not they have bad molecules in them, whether they have viruses or uh, harmful bacteria in them. And they basically broadcast that using these bits of the uh, proteins that they put on their outside of their uh, cell wall so that, you know, the T cells can come along and examine them. Like that's very intricate and it's all evolution. And so obviously uh, viruses, while not technically alive, um, are doing that. And so, uh, biota that are very much alive and are very much, um, able to have, um, you know, have working systems that are very 
analogous to uh, the cell and things like that, they're really good at uh, evolving. And so they're really good at evolving ways to outwit our antibiotics. Okay. So, <laughs> um, with all that said, um, yes, longtime listeners will know that this is a particular issue of mine. Um, I am someone who thinks about this probably as much as most non-doctors. Um, and so I always appreciate research that suggests pathways to create new classes of antibiotics. And so a team of researchers looked at the way in which carbapenems, a potent class of antibiotics, are able to circumvent antibiotic resistance using a particular chain of atoms in their structure. The team imaged an enzyme which is involved in the creation of this chain to better understand how it is constructed and to see if it can perhaps be replicated in future to create new antibiotics. Carbapenems belong to a large group called beta-lactam antibiotics, which also include penicillin. Carab Carbapenems uh, are often reserved as a last resort against multidrug-resistant bacteria, including hospital-acquired and ventilator-associated bacterial pneumonia something we've seen a rise of in recent times, obviously due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of this class are able to evade antibiotic resistance with the fact that they have a side chain that includes two or three methyl, methyl groups, a carbon atom and three hydrogen atoms. In many cases, bacteria can evolve resistance to beta-lactam antibiotics by degrading a structure in the antibiotic called the beta-lactam ring, which renders, which renders it ineffective, said Squire Booker, a biochemist at Penn State investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and an author of the paper. But the addition of the methyl groups in the side chain prevents this degradation, making carbapenems powerful clinical tools. In this study, we imagined a, we imaged a protein called TOC-K that we know facilitates the synthesis of the side change chain in order to reconstruct the initial chemical steps in this process. TOC-K is a type of SAM S adeno <laughs> Oof, adenosylmethionine, um, and I'm still mispronouncing that, I apologize, enzyme that is involved in the methylation process. Here, TOCK-K helps add three methyl groups to the antibiotic, building the crucial chain. They found that it uses one of its iron sulfur clusters to convert a SAM molecule into a free radical which catalyzes the reaction. The radical takes a hydrogen atom from the antibiotic as it's being constructed. TOC-K then donates a methyl group 
from a part of its structure called methylcobalamin to the spot left open by the hydrogen atom. This is done three times to produce a chain with three methyl groups. Tuck K acts like a scaffold in this process, bringing together the methylcobalamin, a SAM molecule, and the antibiotic into an ideal position for transfer of the methyl group to occur, to occur says Haley Knox, a graduate student at Penn State and an author of the paper. The second methyl group is actually attached much more quickly than we would expect based on the energetics. We think that this is because the components are already so well aligned from the first step. And so, interestingly, cobalamin, also known as vitamin B12, is not known for its involvement in such, quote, radical chemistry. So when they say radical chemistry, they mean free radicals. Um, and so this suggests that it may play a different role in some of the enzyme-driven reactions it helps facilitate. Typically, we think of methylcalabamin as being involved in what we call polar chemistry rather than radical chemistry, said Booker. But here we found that TOCK-K and we think many other cobalamin-dependent radical SAM enzymes use radical chemistry. It turns out that cobalamin is much more versatile than we had previously appreciated. And of course, knowing more about how this happens may lead to insights for how to replicate the process and potentially create even more potent antibiotics, which is the big thing that we need. Multiple methylations by a radical SAM enzyme are unusual, although not unprecedented, and have created a library of two and three carbon variants of the carbapenem core in nature, said Craig Townsend, a professor of chemistry at Johns Hopkins and another author of the paper. Two methyl groups may be optimal for antibiotic activity, but what one, but one wonders if engineers Engineering of TOCK-K could incorporate four or more of these groups could lead to further improvements in the running battle against bacterial resistance. And so that is very cool. And um, again, anything that helps us have better defenses against uh, antibiotics that had against biotics. Um, <laughs> so basically bacterial infections um, and uh, anything that helps us improve antibiotics is what I was really trying to say is definitely helpful because goodness gracious, there is a lot of multi-drug resistant bacteria out there at this point and it just keeps getting worse because um, for one thing, a lot of people have had to switch to things like worrying about COVID rather than worrying about um, bacterial resistance. And um, it's just, and obviously evolution doesn't stop just because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so, yeah, um, oh, it's very frightening because it really is the kind of thing where um, you could develop a sore, and if the bacteria in that sore just happened to be multi-drug resistant, you could end up having basically 
I mean, this is an extreme case and it hasn't happened yet in modern times, but you could literally, you know, have a wound on a finger that actually manages to kill you. And again, that's, that's a, uh, hyperbole, um, in order to sort of press the idea of what could happen. Um, that's not something that's happening now, but, uh, for instance, I did, read about a woman who had a sore in her leg for about nine years and basically nothing could touch it. And they finally developed something to be able to take it on. Um, and so that was a different process, uh, not having to do with a, um, antibiotic in this kind of class, but yeah, so who it's, it's a lot. Okay. So again, before COVID came along, one of the other biggest players on the block and one that continues to plague man absolutely uh, incessantly is obviously malaria. Malaria is one of our oldest enemies, and we continue to seek ways to eradicate it. Recently, a team of researchers led by the John Innes Center for Plant Science in England found that the enzyme DNA... Ooh. Tapoisomerase 6, or TOPO6, performs an important role in removing chromosome tangles that occur in the cell nucleus of plants. This function enables endoreduplication, where the DNA content is doubled. That is the source of polyploidy, where a plant has multiple sets of chromosomes. So there's lots of plants that actually have multiple sets of chromosomes, and so, you know, in human cells, there's generally only one set of chromosomes in each, um, in each cell. But in plants, they sometimes have two or three, uh, sets of chromosomes. Topo 4 was known to be present in archaea, a type of single-celled organisms without a nucleus for a long time, but it was only recently discovered in plants and in parasites such as the malaria pelsifarium and other uh, malarial um, parasites. Our study shows that TOPO6 in plant functions to remove chromosome tangles that occur during the endoreduplication process. This potentially explains its presence in plants where during endoreduplication, entanglements are most likely to occur, explained lead author Dr. Shannon McKee. And so they note that Topo 6 has evolved an intrinsic preference for the unnodding and decatenation of, of interlinked chromosomes by sensing and preferentially unlinking DNA crossings with geometries close to 90 degrees, according to the paper. Again, it's so amazing that it's able to do this. The work was a collaboration between the John Innes Center and the NIH and used a combination of biochemistry and single molecular analysis using magnetic tweezers to study the function of the enzyme in archaea. Our study gives unprecedented insight into the mechanisms of action of this enzyme at the molecular level, said group leader Professor Tony Maxwell and a senior author of the paper. This work may give us a clue to the role of TOPO6 in plasmodial parasites and suggest that the enzyme could be a target for anti-malarial drugs in the future. 
In plants 2, Topo 6 could have potential use as a target for herbicides, he added. And so, again, sometimes you are looking at something and it might have potential impact on several different kinds of science. Um, and so that's really cool. And especially it's something apparently so sort of basal to a lot of um, organisms that things as disparate as plants and archaea and uh, Pulsifarium and other um, and other plasmodia, it's just it's really interesting that they all share this kind of thing and that this could be a target for intervention. And so that's very interesting and cool. All right, we're going to finish up tonight by switching from uh, biochemistry and medicine to material science. And so this is coming from a local source. Uh, so there is a Center for Material Sciences at UMass Amherst. And so recently, uh, some researchers from there published in PNAS uh, that they had created a new rubber-like solid substance with surprising qualities. The substance can absorb and release large amounts of energy and is programmable. Imagine a rubber band, said Alfred Crosby, professor of polymer science and engineering at UMass Amherst and the paper's senior author. You pull it back, and when you let it go, it flies across the room. Now imagine a super rubber band. When you stretch it past a certain point, you activate extra energy stored in the material. When you let the rubber band go, it flies for a mile. This new metamaterial is a combination of an elastic, rubber-like substance with tiny magnets embedded in it. The elastomagnetic material uses a physical property known as phase shift to greatly amplify the amount of energy the material is able to release or absorb. A phase shift occurs when a material moves from one state to another. During this process, energy is either absorbed or released. Think boiling water turning to steam or water turning to ice but there can also be phase shifts in solid states. Doing this can release energy that can be harnessed, but the trick is getting enough energy for this to be viable. To amplify energy release or, or absorption, you have to engineer a new structure at the molecular or even atomic level, said Crosby. This is obviously quite a challenge and even harder to do in a way that is predictable and replicable. But Crosby says that by using metamaterials, that we have overcome these challenges and have not only made new materials, but also developed the design algorithms that allow these materials to be programmed with specific responses, making them predictable. The metamaterials response can be changed by orienting the magnets in different directions. The team was inspired by nature, including the Venus flytrap and trapjaw ants. We've taken this to the next level, said Zhu Dong Liang, the paper's lead author, currently a professor at Harbin Institute of Technology uh, in Shenzhen, which who completed this research while a postdoc at UMass Amherst. By embedding tiny magnets into the elastic material, we can control the phase transitions of this metamaterial. And because the phase shift is predictable and repeatable, we can engineer the metamaterial to do exactly what we want it to do, 
either absorbing the energy from a large impact or releasing great quantities of energy for explosive movement. So that's pretty cool. Um, of course, one caveat is that the uh, research was sponsored by the army, um, I believe. So, um, yeah, um, still very cool, but uh, that's a little bit unfortunate. But still, very cool and a good way to end the show. Uh, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.